Under the Tartan Sky, episode 37, produced 12 March 2017. Each year, Scotland's National Tourism Organization, Visit Scotland, and the Scottish Government put forth a promotional theme aimed at driving tourism to and throughout Scotland while featuring specific sectors of Scottish industry, culture, history, and more. Recent previous themes have included the Year of Homecoming, the Year of Innovation, Architecture, and Design, and the Year of Food and Drink. 2018 has already been designated as the Year of Young People, but for now, 2017 is the year of history, heritage, and archaeology. I'm Glenn Moyer, and when I return, I'll be joined by two guests to help us peer into the Scottish mist to see just what's in store in the coming months across Scotland in this year of history, heritage, and archaeology. It's all coming up here under the Tartan Sky. History, heritage, Archaeology. In 2017, Scotland invites you to peer into the mists. Scotland's history is a long and rich one, filled with stories of legends and myths. Its heritage can be found in fields of standing stones and the ruins of castles that once were clan strongholds. Through the science of archaeology, new discoveries of ruins and artefacts are continuously being made, but often reveal tantalising new clues to stories yet untold. In 2017, more than 50 events are planned built around nine major festivals, as Scotland invites visitors and locals alike to come face to face with the past. Great legends have been made throughout Scotland's history. What story will you write when you visit Scotland in the year of history, heritage and archaeology? Scotland is a land that has a rich, colorful, diverse, and long history. Quoting from the website of Visit Scotland, In Scotland, the past seems so close you can almost feel it swirling around you. Epic landscapes were carved out by icy glaciers millennia ago. Towering castles have stood for centuries, and mesmerizing stories, traditions, and legends have been passed down for generations. End quote. This year, in 2017, that history is taking center stage for all to see, as is the archaeology that often reveals it and the heritage of stories and traditions that result and are unmistakably Scottish. Joining me to discuss this year of history, heritage, and archaeology, what it means for Scots living at home and abroad, as well as the opportunities presented tourists visiting Scotland this year, are two experts whose organizations are partners in the year-long initiative. First is Mari McFadgen, Storytelling Network Coordinator for Tracks, or Traditional Arts and Cultures Scotland. It's an organization that celebrates the traditional arts of music, dance, storytelling, language, and more. McFadgen and Tracks are based in the Scottish Storytelling Centre, found on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. Also joining me is Jeff Sanders, Project Manager for Digit 2017, 
itself a year-long celebration of archaeology in Scotland. Digit 2017 is organized by Archaeology Scotland and by the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland. This year of history, heritage, and archaeology features hundreds of events across Scotland involving many partner organizations. So I asked Mari and Jeff to begin by sharing with us the significance of the year's festivities to their two organizations. Well, for us, it's very exciting because it's really an opportunity to celebrate heritage in a new way. I mean, for many people, heritage, the association with that word is the kind of big heritage, the monuments, the sites, the big national collections and institutions. And for us, we see heritage as something dynamic and live. It's about what what is important and has meaning for people and places. And in a sense, heritage is almost for us um, more about the present than it is about the past in that it's a creative resource to reimagine and tell the story of the past in a new way. Um, I suppose we imagine heritage as um, those parts of the past that have meaning in the present that we kind of join together and create and celebrate through um, the creative arts. So whether that's storytelling or music or a new song or new stories. So we see this year as an opportunity to really use heritage as this hugely in inspirational creative resource um, to celebrate um, all the huge diverse um, particularities that there are in communities across Scotland. I think um, the the visitor aspect is an important one. I mean, we're speaking to you today from the National Museum of Scotland, which recently got almost 1.8 million visitors last year. Um, and that's fantastic. One of the things I think that's really exciting about this year is we can celebrate all of the stuff that we would normally do anyway, but market it coherently and really take a moment to go, wow, we do an awful lot of really cool things. But it also gives us the excuse to really kind of try new things and kind of really engage people who maybe haven't engaged much with, with Scotland's culture, Scotland's past before. And the year is, of course, at least a few months old at this point, going into the first quarter of the year, and there have been events already ongoing. Have you seen evidence of that engagement so far? The one that pops into my head kind of most clearly is the Outlander effect. <laughs> I don't know, have you read The, the Outlander? Yes, I'm, I'm a huge Outlander fan, yes. Have, have you seen the TV show? I have indeed, yes. Um, we work with a lot of organizations who've been involved in, in making particularly the TV show. In fact, they were filming in Edinburgh um, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, they've got a fanatical following. The detail that they put into those books, into that TV show, is incredible. And as a result, people really want, you know, the, the facts, they want the detail, they want the kind of little hidden stories. And every organization that has been involved in the filming of Outlander has reported a considerable uptake, um, uptick in terms of the number of visitors that they've had, the number of inquiries, um, and the number of hits on their website. And that's been something that even now, even in the kind of the colder winter months, people are actually coming over and visiting those sites. Well, I know that's certainly true, and it has unquestionably had a dramatic effect on uh, Scottish tourism. And I suppose, in a way, it is helping to tell the story of Scotland's history and heritage. Absolutely. I think what's really fantastic for us is that it hooks people in in the first instance to give them an, a, you know, a driving, a motivation to come over here and discover more. And the great thing about Scotland um, is that we've been very 
fantastically talented at documenting um, our history and heritage, well, since the 1700s, in fact. And all those resources are there. So when people are have that kind of first interest and they come, we can point them and signpost them to where they can discover a huge amount more and really become involved and discover things that they never would really have expected to discover. I think I was a little surprised when when this year's theme was announced, history, heritage, and archaeology. History and heritage, I can certainly understand. There is a tremendous link there, and in some, we'll talk about that in a bit. There's actually a bit of a gray area when you decide, try to decide what's history, what's heritage. But archaeology, I thought, well, wait a minute. Who lumped that in there? And yet, when I think about it, archaeology, and, and particularly the area that you're involved with, uh, Mari, storytelling, actually do go together quite well. They are closely linked. Uh, On the one hand, archaeological discoveries can help to prove or disprove perhaps a long-held story that's been passed down through the ages, history if you will, or an archaeological find can reveal clues that lead to the development of an entirely new understanding of history and the heritage that resulted. Um, So I guess it does make sense that archaeology is a key role in the understanding of Scotland's history and heritage. Would the two of you agree with that? Absolutely. absolutely. I I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Archaeologists are storytellers, and we just use very different sources. Um, It's all about uncovering those stories from the past, and as well as proving or disproving, there's revealing new stories. I mean, Scotland was hit by a tsunami about 10,000 years ago. We only know that through the archaeology. We also have evidence. One of my favorite digs recently was on a a park. It was about to be made into a cricket pavilion. They're going to play cricket there. And they dug down and they found two Roman altars to the god Mithras. Um, We'd never even thought that the, the Mithraic cult had reached Scotland before. But here we were, you know, a, a complete chance find, and we start to be able to write another chapter in ancient Rome, an ancient Roman belief. So when it comes to history and heritage, help me draw the line. What do you consider, what's history versus what's heritage? To me, the two are almost seem essentially the same, and yet I know there has to be a distinction between the two. Could I tackle the history and archaeology and the the, the history bit and then? Sure. Yeah, sure. uh, Although I think it would also be interesting just to, you know, explore that link between storytelling and archaeology a bit more as well. So, okay. um, I think that uh, my just kind of an easy answer, I suppose. Effectively, archaeology is a suite of methodologies um, that explores the past from before there were written records. We use a whole range of different sources of those stories from survey, human bone, animal bone, um, environmental analysis. History tries to tell the stories of the past through written records, census data, um, and the like. And so they're effectively both methodologies. And uh, and in terms of heritage, I'll I'll pass the buck. (laughs) Um, Well, I suppose asking the question, what is history, is a philosophical question. To what extent can it be, you know, an objective interpretation of the past? Um, But Heritage is one of those very useful words that kind of means everything and means nothing at the same time. It's a very useful word. It's something that people um, grasp onto. But in a sense, um, heritage is whatever um, is important to you. For me, heritage is a process. It's a process of making meaning out of the past. And actually what that meaning is will depend on where you are standing at that present moment, in a sense. I think of it as um, you're selecting bits of the past and you're creating a new narrative in the present that reflects your kind of contemporary 
values, but that that is one interpretation of that word. There are many interpretations of the word heritage, and in fact, there's a whole academic study um, or academic field devoted to um, interrogating what that word means. So um, I think it's a it's a, an incredibly uh, creative, dynamic thing. Um, interestingly, there is no word in the Gaelic context that cor- like directly translates as heritage. Um, so we have quite a lot of fun kind of looking at what that means in the Gaelic context, because obviously heritage is hugely important in that context. But they kind of see this relationship between um, land and culture. It's what is inherited, what is passed down to you um, as the word duochus. But it has a distinct meaning in that context, so that's well. And it brings up, uh, I guess, to put it in in very layman's terms, you know, when I go and visit a castle, be it Urquhart or Eileen Donan or Castle Dune or any castle, pick your your castle of choice in Scotland. Am I seeing history or am I seeing heritage or both? In that context, I think you're very much seeing both. But um, to go back to the question about storytelling. Um, in a sense, we talk about, or UNESCO tends to talk about this division between material heritage and things and intangible cultural heritage, which are the stories and songs mm. and, you know, the, the kind of intangible world. But in a sense, archaeology, objects are just objects until you make uh. them come alive and give them meaning through through stories, through narrative. So you're, in that context, seeing a castle, of course, you're seeing a piece of history. You're seeing the material remnants of the past. But when that is, you know made alive, then that's you discovering the heritage, I suppose. I don't know if that's true, but um, what would you say? I, I think all I say is I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it, it sounded like there was a bit of a dig from Mari at you there, Jeff, that, you know, your archaeology your archaeology, your archaeology doesn't mean anything until she puts stories to it. <laughs> well, that is so true. And I think one of the weaknesses in the past of archaeology is we find these amazing stories, but we're not always great at telling people about them. So actually we've worked with the Scottish Storytelling Centre loads. Because of that, we've got great stories to tell. We don't always tell them brilliantly and storytellers are fantastic at that. Well, while we're on the archaeology subject, let's look at uh, Dig It 2017 because the year is the year of history, heritage and archaeology. And within that, we have the project that you're in uh, directly involved with, Jeff, and that is Dig It 2017. Tell me a little bit about what is Dig It 2017 and how does it interweave to the overall year of history, heritage, and archaeology? We're definitely shining a bit of a spotlight on that archaeology component, but we cross over to history and heritage a lot too. Um, With Dig It, we fulfill a number of different roles, three main ones. We promote all of the wonderful stuff happening um, across Scotland. One of the things we found in 2015 where we kind of had a wee trial run at this was we found that there are about 1,500 events were put on in 2015, and there'll be more this year. So actually just providing a, a website, an easily fun, engaging website, where you actually put all of those events, makes it, markets it really as a, a kind of a, a very impressive program. Um, it markets it coherently. The other thing we do is we help different organizations put on different types of stuff. People are really trying something different in 2017, but they don't always have the network available that we have. So we can help folk find um, various different partners to put on really cool things. And the third thing we do is we put on events, resources, activities ourselves. We've got a a Minecraft project called Crafting the Past, where we recreate different um, sites in Minecraft and 
have people kind of dig around them virtually and then they can actually go off and, and excavate in the real world. It's all about kind of meeting people halfway, finding what they're interested in and, and using that as a hook in the same way that Mary was talking about Outlander. We talked earlier about the idea of engaging people in the aspects of history, heritage, and archaeology. And, and archaeology to me, I mean, at its root sense, is a, a bunch of very scholarly, knowledgeable scientists and usually some student interns out at a dig, carefully digging and looking for artifacts and things. And, and it all seems very for lack of a better term, I suppose, scholarly. And yet your website mentions, and I'll read a quote here, it says, quoting, whether you're getting muddy at a dig or strolling through a festival, now is the perfect time to let archaeology move you, surprise you, and inspire you, end quote. And so I guess I'm curious about what steps are you undertaking as a means to engage the layman, the tourist? This is, after all, a tourist initiative. So, I mean, can a tourist sign up and participate in a dig while they're visiting Scotland? Is it that simple? Yeah. Um, the first thing to say, I suppose, is that when you say the word archaeologist, most people tend to actually be quite well disposed to the term archaeologist, but they think of probably an, an older man yeah, 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 exactly. They probably think of dinosaurs. They probably think of a, yeah, an older man in a, in a bad jumper. Um, and a floppy and they, hat. They probably think, exactly, yeah. That they, yeah, there's something in between Indiana Jones and Time Team. Um, the challenge is to highlight that actually archaeology isn't difficult. Um, there's lots of different ways of getting involved. And it isn't just a, a kind of a male scholarly preserve. Um, digging is perhaps what you maybe associate most with archaeology. Archaeology involves a whole range of different things, but most people, when they hear archaeology, they think of digging. There are loads of ways of getting involved in, in digs in, in Scotland, particularly this year. And that ranges from turning up at an event, like they have at, at Bannockburn, say, um, and actually seeing archaeologists in action and, and having a go yourself. Some digs will require you to register beforehand, but they'll be free. Um, all the way up to um, very involved field schools that you sign up to and sometimes you have to pay, but you get actual formal training and formal qualifications. So there's something there for everyone. The easiest way to find out about it really is to check out our website or, or sign up to our e-newsletter. But lots of different organizations put on lots of different types of, of digs. And the other thing um, to say is if you ever see an archaeologist in Scotland um, and they're up to something, do ask them. You'll find that most archaeologists are actually dead keen to tell you about what's going on, and they'll have all of the information you'll need about how you can get involved. Well, one of the things that you're doing, and I want to want you to tell us a little more about it that I was intrigued by on your website, is I presume even for those who can't visit Scotland uh, in this year of history, heritage, and archaeology, uh, you have something called Digit TV. <laughs> yeah, um, th this was this was actually all came about. Um, because we were thinking about how to reach a different range of people. Um, and YouTube is a brilliant platform for that. Um, video, again, is something that we're just really starting to utilize in Scottish archaeology. Um, and so we decided to put together, to have a little bit of a go at creating some YouTube content, a YouTube channel that actually explored all of those aspects, history, heritage, and archaeology. So we've got three different hosts. Um, each looks at... Um, sites and monuments and stories that we associate with history, heritage, and archaeology. So we've got uh, we've got an American anthropologist um, who tackles the archaeology, 
and goes out and explores wonderful places and sites. He was recently at a site called Hamilton Mausoleum. I think that's probably my favorite video. It's an incredible place. Um, if you do get the chance to, to visit it, it looks like a building from ancient Rome, but it's slap bang in, in the middle of Scotland. And um, we've got one presenter and um, the castle hunter who looks at heritage. He looks at how the past is mobilized and things like Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. And he loves castles. So we've got loads of videos of castles. Um, and our other presenter looks at history. She looks at the stories of individuals from the past. Um, and it's it's brilliant fun. Do check us out, Dig It TV. There are links through the website. Also, you can just type that into YouTube. But it's a really kind of fun way of experiencing a place through someone else's eyes. And what we're really keen to do with it is to highlight some of the kind of hidden secret sites that you might not find um, on your kind of average tourist guide. So hopefully it gives people a little bit of an idea of, ooh, these are some of the places that, you know, if we do go and visit Scotland, we could go and see. But in the meantime, I can have a wee kind of look around through the power of the internet. Well, it is interesting because um, the mausoleum, the Hamilton Mausoleum, happens to be the one piece of video that I did look at when I was researching for our chat. Um, the other thing that I would mention quickly is that uh, David, the castle hunter, um, has confirmed that he'll be a guest on an upcoming show here. We'll be talking all about uh, his role with Dig It TV, but even on a larger expanse about the castles of Scotland and, and the history and the heritage that can be found there. So I'm looking forward to having him on the show. I didn't realize he was one of your presenters, but that's, uh, that's great news. Um, so Myri, from there, that understanding of archaeology and how one gets involved, what is the role of storytelling in the year of history, heritage, and archaeology? And how is the storytelling center in your organization then getting involved in, and bringing all this into a cohesive package? Well, there's just so much going on. It's very difficult to bring it all together in a kind of um, in a cohesive way. But really, we support networks um, across Scotland of music, traditional music, um, storytelling and dance all across Scotland. But we're based at the Scottish Storytelling Centre in Edinburgh, which is a purpose built centre for um, the traditional art of storytelling. So this is um, oral storytelling, the idea of sharing stories eye to eye, mind to mind and heart to heart, which is a rather lovely way of putting it. Um, so we are using this, like like Jeff at Dig It, as a way to really get people to think about heritage in a new way, maybe to take a look around their own village or neighbourhood or town and discover for the first time perhaps what's really exciting about and what's distinctive about their own local place. That's one aspect aspect of it. Um, we're also trying to discover the people's heritage. So, you know, characters from the past, making them come alive through storytelling and celebrating all sorts, using storytelling in the context of archaeology, in the context of any number of things. So we're visiting heritage sites and trying to engage young people um, people who never really might have encountered these stories in before. So um, we run two main festivals in the year. One is our International Storytelling Festival. Um, so that's bringing people from all over the world to come and discover the stories of Scotland and take away stories with them. But um, our main input into this year of history, heritage and archaeology is our spring festival called Tradfest. And incidentally, everyone keeps talking about history, heritage and archaeology but we have um, a nickname um, which is um, the hashtag is HHA and it's the year of so we're calling it uh, Yeehaw <laughs> so I thought you might like that <laughs> that's very Texan sounding almost 
Yeah. Um, so this year it's a celebration, um, a 10-day celebration of Scotland's traditional arts. Um, I'm not sure if um, traditional arts is a is a common term in the States, but it really is celebrating local culture. So it's the distinctive local festivals, music, songs, stories of local people in local places and really trying to celebrate that in a new way. And for us, the thrust of the year is very much, yes, you know, we're very, very good. It's, we've got a huge industry celebrating the top level national tourist sites, but it's an opportunity, as Jeff was mentioning, to maybe highlight those lesser known stories um, and sites in, in new places. So that's a, it's a very, it's, there's so much happening. It's difficult to convey it all. So I hope that gave some sense of what we're up to. Um, but you can look on our website to discover the program for Tradfest and we may well be broadcasting some of that. Right. And, and of course, we'll have links to, to both of your websites and some other associated websites um, in the show notes on our website. Jeff is talking about television and video, YouTube, which is a, a very now technology, if you will. Storytelling is really an ancient art. And I'm curious, Mari, from your perspective, is it an art that is perhaps disappearing oral storytelling because of technology? Is it being accentuated because of technology? And how important is the art of storytelling for us to continue that? Because my impression is in the early, the earliest times, word of mouth storytelling, if you will, is how a lot of history was originally recorded. You've got some great questions. <laughs> That's my job. Um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you asked Maddie that question. <laughs> um, well, of course, in, in ancient in ancient society, in ancient clan society, the role of the storyteller was hugely highly regarded. You know, in terms of a hierarchy, they were right at the top because, as you say, they were the keepers of genealogy, they were the keepers of history, they were, you know, in terms of legalities, they were the keepers of the most important documents belonging to society. Um, and you know, as history went on, that value placed on storytelling it found new contexts and really kind of it was really largely within the home. Um, that and in domestic settings and in work settings where people would share their culture. And there were some um, 19th century folklorists that believed that the oral tradition in Scotland um, was dead, you know, that, that um, it was really a thing of the past. But history has proven us wrong. And of course, it, human beings, you could argue that what makes us human beings is that we tell stories, that that's the way our brain works, that's the way we make sense of things. And, and to some extent, we are all storytellers. But there are some people who choose to develop that craft and really train themselves in the, in the traditional art of storytelling. So it's, storytelling is that wonderful, um, accessible art form that anyone can, can try. But there are those um, people who choose to make it their profession. And we have some wonderful celebrated tradition bearers in Scotland today. The story of storytelling in the 20th century is actually really fascinating Um you know, in the 1950s with the folklorist Hamish Henderson, who discovered the traveling community, was delighted to discover that there was this oral tradition that was hugely vibrant. And from that point on, there's been something of a revival of the ancient craft of storytelling. But today, um, to answer your question with new technologies, um, it's certainly flourishing in new ways. And as is the case with, you know, the written word and the spoken word, there's always been this kind of relationship and complex interplay between written word, spoken word, and through new technologies, um, the future of oral storytelling can only really expand. I would say, um, for me personally, that the, 
the most magical thing about storytelling is the the real um, face-to-face storytelling and the energy between bodies in a space when you can really communicate eye-to-eye. Um, nothing really beats that, even though we can talk to each other across time and space. As we are here. It sounds maybe as if we're sitting in the same office talking together, but obviously we're separated by thousands of miles. And, um, and in a sense, that's a bit of a shame. One of the things that attracted me on your website, the Storytelling Center website, is that the center offers, uh, in all of the traditional arts, uh, a great number of uh, seminars, workshops, where you can learn about the various traditional arts. And one that caught my eye in relation to what we're talking about today, of course, and because I've been told that I have a bit of the gift of gab, uh, is... <laughs> certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, I think, um, is that there is a, a seminar called Starting with Stories, an introduction to storytelling and its associating skills. So do I read that to, to mean that if I wanted to become a storyteller or perhaps I consider myself a storyteller and I want to become better at it, that I can go there and and learn some tips either learn how to begin to explore my capability as a storyteller and or to improve what perhaps already are some skills that I have. Absolutely. These workshops are really aimed at anyone who has an interest in storytelling. They're quite popular with teachers, for example, who communicate in their day-to-day life. But they, you know, our audiences and participants um, are rich and varied and people have the opportunity to meet with and learn from um, either tradition barriers or professional storytellers. And something I would say, um, we are very keen to encourage storytelling with younger generations. And a great hook for that is actually archaeology. It's heritage. You know, we do a lot of work training young people to be tour guides. Um, and the skill of the storyteller is absolutely crucial to be able to, um, you know, tell the story of the past. You know, many tour guides come to us because they know a huge number of facts but they don't know how to communicate that. So that's something, that's an area where we would be really keen to work together with an organization or someone like Jeff, who has so much historical knowledge um, and find ways to make that come alive. That really is about creating a vivid experience for the visitor and for the person who's come to discover more. And, and also, sorry, just to say, as, a, as an archaeologist, um, the Storytelling Center is an amazing place to visit. It's incredibly friendly. Um, the folk there are lovely I've done a few little events with them. Um, and apart from never go on after a storyteller, <laughs> which is a lesson I learned the hard way, um, it, it, it's a fantastic place just to just to drop in, you know, even if it's not going for a, you know, a specific course. Drop in and, and hear the chat. That it, it's lovely there. And they have an amazing cafe. Yeah, great cakes. And great cakes. And that's always important, certainly in my book. And, and I was just about to get into that because I don't want to paint the picture of the storytelling, the storytelling center being um, an educational facility, which, of course, it is. But it is, in fact, a place that, that tourists on the Royal Mile can step into and enjoy. As you say, there's cafe and great cakes. And there are all sorts of uh, uh, displays ongoing of uh, all of the traditional arts, as you've said, Mari, the, the dance, the music, storytelling, etc. But the building itself has a story to tell. Part of the Storytelling Center um, encompasses the John Knox House. Can you give us a little bit of a background on the house and the story that it tells? Um, well, yes, it is the John Knox House, and I've now just realized that I know very little about the John Knox House. <laughs> um, well, good. I love it when I put my guest on the spot. <laughs> No, it's okay. I think it's a 16th century building. Is it? Must be older than that. You're looking at me. (laughs) 
Well, the, the, the website says it's the only original uh, medieval building surviving on the Royal Mile today. So I, I'm not sure what that tells you about its date, but obviously it's old. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right outside used to be the old entry, the old gate into Edinburgh's old town. And right across the road is the old King's Wall. Um, and so it was a hugely important area of the city. Um, but am I, I, I'm suddenly now going completely bright red and laughing that I don't know a huge amount about John Knox House. <laughs> Well, I think you'll find it dates to 1470. Oh, it dates to 1470. Okay. Well, it's funny because I'm flashing back to um, this whole discussion we're having right now. I'm flashing back to, to two new podcasts that I'm listening to. Uh, one is called um, Jed Bartlett is My President. It's all about the TV show The West Wing. Um, and the reason I'm flashing back to that is because in the opening up, ep- uh, the series premiere, um, one of the staffers is asked to speak to a fourth grade group about uh, the White House. And he knows literally nothing about the White House <laughs> other than it's big and it's painted white. Other than that, he knows nothing and, and makes a fool of himself. And the other thing is uh, there's another podcast I've just begun listening to uh, called uh, How Story Works. And um, it's it's done by a uh, an award-winning writer, a New York Times bestselling author. Um, and she, she teaches writing. And um, she was making the point of how we all come from a story. Each of us, um, you know, I come from a story that my mother and father told, you know, how they chose to tell it, et cetera, is for interpretation. But if it were not for the story that, that the two of them told together, I wouldn't be here and, and on and on and on. Um, and it sounds like it's going to be a brilliant uh, bit of podcasting and, and sharing of information for anybody who is interested in storytelling. I would highly recommend it. It's done by Chipperish Media um, and it's called How Story Works, uh, not to promote another podcast that I have nothing to do with, but I just find it interesting, um, especially in light of the fact that we're, but I'm sorry I put you on the spot about the, <laughs> about the house. Um no, no, it's okay. <laughs> but uh, you know that's that's what we do um, sometimes. Uh, so, uh, but there is there is a great deal of information about it on the website, and it does tell a story in and of itself. Um, and it is a part of it's a part of the building that now encompasses the storytelling center. Um, and the website mentions there's a, a great cafe with excellent cakes. So there you go. <laughs> I mean. Absolutely. The Storytelling Centre kind of plays this double role as being a tourist destination. So yes. in, in this, we have to give the tourists what they're looking for. Um, but it also really is the hub of the traditional arts network. So it plays that double role. And I think that's part of what we're trying to do when we're creating these experiences for, for the visitors and for the tourists is to, you know, it's quite interesting. Just the very the very act of being a tourist is when you're trying to find that extraordinary experience in the place and you have all these expectations about visiting a place. Um, and so, you know, if, if we're involved in trying to give people what they're looking for, but also try to open their, their eyes a little bit wider. Can I, can I ask you a question, Glenn? Yes, by all means. Something I find really fascinating when talking to tourists is, um, especially when they come from the New World or over in the Americas, is that they're really fascinated just with the sense of pastness um, that exists in Scotland or in Edinburgh particularly, in that I take it for granted that I um, live and work in John Knox House and have, you know, I don't quite realise how old it is. Um, And I walk down the street or I'll visit standing stones that are thousands of years old. And I kind of, I'm used to in my daily life inhabiting a space that has a huge sense of past. And, you know, I've got friends from Australia who come and that's what they're seeking, is that connection with a sense of pastness that maybe doesn't exist in the same way um, in a country that's much younger, such as the United States. 
That's very true, and and a very good point, uh, Mari. I'm proud of you. Um, that was that was one of my. <laughs> have I redeemed myself? You have, <laughs> you have indeed. That was one of my very earliest observations on one of my first trips to Europe back in um, 1988. Uh, in 1990, when I visited the UK and France, and particularly in my trips to Scotland since then. In the United States, I mean, let's face it, our history is only a couple of hundred years to begin with, with the exception, of course, of the, of the Native Americans. And there's not a great deal of evidence of their their history and heritage around us, except on you know the limited reservations now. But we don't have buildings that date back to the, the 1400s or even the ruins of buildings that date back to that time. And, and so our history is very new. And I've always been, quite frankly, a bit disturbed by what I sense in our country um, is that we don't yet – we haven't yet as a, as a society – developed a real appreciation for our own history and heritage. If a building gets to a certain age, we are much more of the want to tear it down and build some new glass and concrete structure that everybody can be amazed at, rather than appreciating the building for what it is and what it represents and the the time and place that it came from. So absolutely, when I'm in Scotland, um, anywhere in Europe, but particularly since my passion is Scotland, when I'm there and I'm able to visit um, the various castles and buildings and homes, it is an entirely different appreciation of history. I remember helping a friend on Facebook. She was going to visit Scotland for the first time and was wondering if her, I think it was her great-grandparents' home, she had the address and you know wondered if she might be able to visit it. And I was able to go on to Google Earth and literally find a picture of it. She had an old picture of when her great-grandparents lived there, and we were able to match that picture to a Google Earth picture in real time of that very house. And the idea that the house that your great-great or even great-great-grandparents lived in not only still exists, but is still being used as someone's home today is a concept that most Americans would find very hard to wrap their heads around because we just don't have that. I am constantly amazed at the history of Scotland is so immense. So kudos to you. Excellent observation. When I think of America, though, I I think of uh, actually a a fair time depth because of my own personal family history, because my grandmother's grandfather was a ship's captain who relocated his then entire family over to Berkeley in California. Mm. So whenever I go back to California, my, um, my girlfriend's from California, um, it kind of feels as though I'm going back in time and experiencing kind of elements of of what life would have been like for my great great grandparents. Um, the Presidio National Park in San Francisco was amazing for that, absolutely incredible. And I think here in Scotland we actually share a little bit of that problem you described in terms of appreciation for the past. We've got a good appreciation for the old past. You know, you won't get many people knocking down a castle here. But the more recent past, which is just as much of a fount of interesting and exciting stories, is something that isn't always protected as much. And that particularly industrial story is one that just now is starting to get that kind of recognition that it deserves. And the best place to see that basically is um, New Lanark. Mm. Uh, Uh. I think that's a kind of, you know, late 18th into the 19th century. And it gives you a real sense of, of, of a, a lost way of life. Yeah, in fact, I visited New Lanark on my last uh, stay in Scotland, uh, January 
uh, January of 2015. Um, and it is a very, very interesting area to see. And it is a different part of Scottish history. But you make a comment that, that has just given me this thought, and I'm curious to get your reaction. And, and that is, as you talk about the Scottish appreciation of their own history, you know, in Texas today, uh, as we were talking before we began this program about today is the day uh, we're recording this on March the 6th, which is the day that the Alamo fell in 1836. And that's a, a great bit of Texas history. It is considered to be the cradle of Texas liberty. And yet, when I lived and worked in the media in San Antonio years ago, I was astonished at how many people who lived and grew up in San Antonio, my own ex-wife at the time, had never been to the Alamo, and she grew up in San Antonio. And it's like, how can you grow up in the shadow of a historic place like that and never have visited it? And I wonder if the Scottish shared that sense in that the tourists come to see all of the history, and yet you may live in a village where there is history or a particularly very historic place right at your doorstep, and yet you don't have the interest to even go and visit it and see it. Do you, do you find that to be true in Scotland? I think that's a really interesting question, and I think that it would probably be quite surprising, for example, how many people in a particular area didn't visit their own equivalent of the Alamo I'm thinking in Edinburgh, it would probably be the castle. Right. Um, and I'd like to think that I'm sure everyone's gone to visit that. But I, I'm, you've now got me thinking. I don't know if what Mary thinks. Yeah, I think it's a, an interesting question. I think it's actually um, quite often the case where people have a sense of what their national heritage is, you know, on, on the big scale. But they're not aware of the important sites in their local area, which I, I think it's really important just for a sense of cultural confidence and connection and value to, to, to discover that. I'll admit this now. Um, I didn't go to see Edinburgh Castle until I was <gasps> 28. <gasps> I've lived oh my for gosh. 14 years <laughs> and I had never been. I took advantage of one of the doors open days. But it's true. It's, it's very difficult to, if you live and work in a place, it becomes your everyday experience. And to actually get into that mode of in you know looking at your home through the eyes of a tourist like when if you go to visit Paris then you have certain expectations that you want to see lovers kissing on the street or you want to see the Eiffel Tower but it's it's difficult you have to put on a pair of glasses and self-consciously look at your city and through new eyes in order to see it it's quite interesting I see I find the whole idea fascinating I suppose it's a bit like working in John Knox's house and not knowing anything about it huh <laughs> no I know <laughs> She's not going to be able to live that down, I feel. <laughs> I know. I, actually, that's one of the um, – I mean, Edinburgh has an awful lot of people come visit it. It's an incredibly beautiful city. It is. And we have times where it's very busy during the festivals. And it's actually really nice when a friend comes to visit you know, Edinburgh and you, again, by walking around with them, you see the city through their eyes, mm. which makes things like the festival, like the castle. It makes them – kind of come alive again for the first time that you saw them because it kind of rejuvenates you too. And um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, traveling over to Texas and not seeing the Alamo. Um, that actually surprises me because that's one of the things I associate most with, with Texas. We were just talking about, you know, the Scottish um, uh, influence, you know, with that particular event. Right. Um, and it right. would be something, you know, I want to see anyway, but I think it kind of helps having that external enthusiasm. I think that's the whole thing. It's a question of perspective, because as you say, if you live and work in Edinburgh, you're you're surrounded by history, and yet it becomes a part of your everyday existence, and perhaps you see it in a different perspective than someone like myself who comes and 
goes, oh my gosh, I want to see the grass market. I want to go see uh, the castle. I want to see this. I want to see that. Um, and I see it through a, an entirely different perspective than than you. And so, yeah, I think that's a great point, Jeff, that having a friend that suddenly can, in a sense, sort of open your eyes to what is around you that maybe you take as every day and, and sometimes have just simply forgotten the, the special place or the history that it has and, and can share. Another thing I think um, for me certainly is the power of um, media and film. I mean, when I've only been to the States a few times, but um, I have such a sense of what that place is through my experience of seeing it represented on film. And so I think for a lot of people, and it is this outlander effect, that it's very exciting to, you know, visit the place that has been so vividly in your imagination before you before you've arrived you know i think the imagination really plays a, a, a crucial role in this oh um, you know visiting a battlefield i've always thought was a kind of bizarre thing to do because it's essentially just a field but if you if you have the ability to imagine with the help of a storyteller or an archaeologist to you know relive that experience then it comes alive in a different way so i think it is perspective but it's also your ability to kind of imagine the past in the present, um, as it were. Well, and now you've tapped into my real, what I call my Scottish ground zero, Mari, because um, I fell in love with Scotland through the television program Monarch of the Glen. And, um, oh, Archie, my love. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Archie. And see, I, I don't care much for Archie, but now Lexi and I could have an entirely different conversation. But I did. I, I stumbled onto that program on television about three and a half years ago and started watching it and literally fell in love with it. And I, until that time, I'd known for years I was Scott-Irish, um, or as I like to say, I'm Scottish because my, my Irish descent, my Irish ancestors came from Scotland. Ireland was a stop along the way. And, and don't get me started on this whole Scott-Irish concept because I have a, a sort of a dim view of that. But uh, my ancestors were Scottish. A and so, but I'd never really, it never really meant anything to me until I just happened to st upon this program and started watching it and literally fell in love with the program and with Lexi too. Um, and so, uh, and those eyes. oh, those blue eyes, the bluest eyes in Scotland, I'll tell you. Um, but uh, I did. And, and, and that place has a special meaning to me. And on my first trip to Scotland, if I saw nothing else, I was going to go to Ardverich Estate and see you know, what I know as Glenn Bogle. And, uh, and I did, I, I led a cottage, uh, on the estate and stayed for a week there and it was pure heaven. It was everything I expected it to be. And then some, and it was amazing. There were some very seminal moments for me during that week. I was in Scotland for three weeks on that trip in, in Glasgow and then at Advertiki and then out onto uh, the Isle of Skye. But there were a couple of times, um, one of the outbuildings at Ardverki is, uh, is an empty building that was used as the uh, the Gillies Rest, the pub, in the TV show, and I was able to to walk up, sit on the front steps, completely alone. Uh, a bit of a gray, overcast day, a light rain falling, and a bit bit of a, a very light breeze blowing through the tops of the pine trees, and just sat there and was almost in tears, thinking, "Oh my God, I'm I'm actually here. I'm in Scotland." I'm at this place that means so much to me now. And it was a dramatic experience um, compared to any other, you know, just going and visiting and seeing history. And it was all because of the link through television and film. If I had not found the place and fallen in love with it through that television show, it's a, a brilliant place to visit. And it's very, you know, photogenic. It's, it's scenic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
But in my case, it had and continues to have very special meaning. And, meaning. and there were a couple of moments there when um, it was very, very emotional for me. And it was all because of my association with that particular place through television and film. So you make an excellent point. Yeah, I, th- I think you visited that space and you already had a personal connection to it through your Indeed. emotional experience of, of that. And you keep saying that word again, it's about meaning. And I think our job, you know, as, as storytellers is to try and help people create that meaning. So it's not a kind of objective experience of some bricks or a site. It's really trying to get people to connect with it and to connect with their own personal experience because that is what creates the most powerful visitor experience. That reminds me, sorry, just to pick up on that sense of, of meaning and connection to place. Um, a good way of doing that, you know, as I found as a student, uh, you know, was archaeology. You know, you go to a place, you spend a lot of time in a landscape with other people trying to find stuff out. And you do find that you develop a, a connection to the land. You start to see things that you wouldn't normally see if you were just kind of walking through it. You know, staying in a cottage um, in that glen, I'm sure, m- meant that you actually saw and you came to appreciate it in a whole other kind of way, adding whole layers of, of kind of meaning mm, and, yes. and enjoyment. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I was able to go walk along the beach and in 99.9% of my experiences there, I was completely alone. I was traveling alone and there was no one else there. It wasn't like I was walking the Royal Mile with, you know, thousands of other tourists. I'm there completely alone. And I was able to walk the beach there at Loch Logan, which features prominently many times in the television show. And there were just those moments when you're going, oh my gosh, you know, this is this is where I'm at. You know, I'm, I'm at this place that means something special to me. And it did open a whole new level of, uh, of appreciation and, and a desire to learn more about the place. And um, another moment was um, when I went uh, not far away uh, down near uh, Spain Bridge, the um, uh, Gilly Quirrell uh, Church and graveyard, which was also one of the filming locations. And, uh, and I walked up this beautiful little church. I, I'd, I recommend it for anyone who lives in Scotland to go to this place. It's just incredibly beautiful. But you walk up a little hill from the car park into this ancient graveyard and an ancient stone church, and there's a little wooden bench at the top of the hill. And I was able to just sit there again, all alone in the Scottish hills. I could have been in the middle of nowhere. And of course, I have Scottish ancestry. And at that particular moment in time, I've never felt a pull to any place. And, and I'm not a world traveler, but I've been to Europe a few times. I've been to New Zealand, places, Mexico, Canada, places like that. I've been a few places, but I've never felt the same sense of this is home. This is where I belong that I did at that particular moment, sitting on that bench up in the highlands of Scotland, all alone. Um, it was a most incredible sense uh, of being that came over me at the time. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the history and, and indeed the mysticism that people seem to to feel about Scotland. Absolutely. And I think that that's the story that we hear again and again of people finding that, that connection. And I think in terms of the landscape, Jeff was mentioning that connection to the landscape. It's a hugely richly storied place. Mm. You know, there's layers and layers of cultural memory there and there, you know, there's ancient stories there's you know recent more recent stories it's just a hugely the landscape is alive with these with these stories and um i think it's quite moving to hear a story like that that you'd find and i I think for me um i would if you had stumbled into a pub and heard some live music and maybe heard some gaelic song or some or a live story that might have made it even more even more special what do you think 
Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm a music lover. <laughs> um, I I actually have played music all my life, um, and uh, and I did actually one of the reasons I I selected um, the cottage that I stayed in on uh, in Edinburgh on uh, the Isle of Skye was because the Inn of Edinburgh was recommended to me as a place where they have great local music, and on Sunday afternoons they do. Um, so I did have a bit of that experience, and. Uh, I wanted to go back to something, Jeff, that you, you mentioned. You talked about how uh, friends and visitors from overseas and or other places can help to open your eyes to the value of uh, some of the locations that are around you. And clearly, the world has recognized value in a number of sites in Scotland. And I'm talking, of course, about the World Heritage Sites. Um, and Scotland in six, that's a hashtag that's being used a lot, is being used in relation to World Heritage Day, which is coming up on 18th of April. And I know that is a big part of what HHA 2017 is about. Can you tell me a bit about how uh, World Heritage Day will be involved in the the larger history, heritage, and archaeology um, excitement? And let's talk a little bit about some of those World Heritage Sites. A little bit in the same way that you were talking about people not having visited the Alamo who live nearby. Um, we're kind of keen to get folk here in Scotland to engage with the World Heritage Sites that we've got. We've got six World Heritage Sites. Um, and a UNESCO World Heritage Site basically just means that it's a site that's recognized as being unique enough that it contributes to a global story. So most countries have World Heritage Sites, and it's all part of a, a big, much broader uh, narrative, much broader story. Um, what we're planning on doing is on World Heritage Day itself, which will probably be a wet um, Tuesday, um, <laughs> Tuesday the, uh, 18th of April, um, we're having a series of events at all six of our World Heritage Sites um, throughout the same day. So we've got crazy shenanigans going on all over the place. There'll be lots of ways of getting involved, both at each of the sites, but also um, online. And then after the day is, is done, it'll be a very long day, we're launching a campaign, a Scotland in Six campaign, where we're getting each local authority area in Scotland, and Scotland's divided up into 32 local authorities, um, to put forward a kind of a hidden gem, a site that you might not have, have seen or visited before. And then we'll put that out to the public vote. Um, and the top six, we're going to do a, a, a series of kind of parallel mirror events, if you like, in September. So we'll have the, the six World Heritage Sites um, that are kind of world famous. We'll have a series of fun different events at those. And then we'll have a big campaign to find Scotland's six kind of favorite, not so well-known sites. And we're going to have a, a big series of events uh, with them in September. And September is important because it's Scottish Archaeology Month. If you're interested in anything archaeology um, in Scotland, come over in September. There are festivals going on all over the place, digs, exhibitions, and of course, our six Scotland and Six events. For the audience that maybe doesn't know, what are the six World Heritage Sites that will be celebrated? Uh, yeah, no, now you put me on the spot. Of course. <laughs> I'll go for it. This can be a test. This can be a test. Um, so we've got the Fourth Rail Bridge. We've got New Lanark, which as Jeff has mentioned. We've got the Antonine Wall. Um, keeping out the Romans. Um, we have Edinburgh Old and New Towns. We have the heart of Neolithic Orkney. And we have St Kilda. And that was my question. What were you going to do in St Kilda? I'm really impressed. Um, <laughs> I, 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 Give that lady a I, gold I, star. I, I, 
at each of these sites, we've got something crazy and fun going on. So in the old in um, Edinburgh, because it's Edinburgh old and new towns, we've got a battle of the bands. So we've got minstrels facing oh, off against so classical musicians in the morning. They'll be zooting around to different locations, and then they come together in St Cecilia's Hall, which is about to be newly reopened. Edinburgh University-run Museum of Musical Instruments. And we're going to have a big um, free lunchtime concert where we'll be projecting, you know, the, the room will be transformed into um, the, the King's Court or uh, a, a local tavern in the 18th century. Um, and we're going to have, the audience are going to be very participatory and we're going to have voting and it's going to be loads and loads of fun. And we're doing kind of weird things like that all over the place. The only one that we've got a, a, a challenge with is St Kilda. <laughs> Because I, I I don't know, have you heard of St Kilda, Glenn? I, I'm familiar with it, yes, yes. Uh, have you ever been there? No, I have not. Very few people have. It's, you know, an island range way off um, the outer Hebrides. And we wanted to run an event on the island in April and then helicopter off or, or, um, or boat back. Um, unfortunately, they didn't take any of my suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're doing is we're, we're recreating the island... Um, in complete one-to-one topographic accuracy in Minecraft. And we're going to fill the island, we're going to fill the Minecraft version of the island and with a whole series of surprises with, um, we're basically pouring in a kiss the riches. We're pouring in stories and tales and even an archaeological dig. And we're going to be, on the day, we're going to be in the Western Isles and getting people to kind of interact and have have fun with this. But it's going to be something that we showcase much more broadly. So in terms of a way that people can get involved um, who perhaps aren't in Scotland or who are in Scotland but can't make it out to St Kilda, that's going to be the way to do it. Um, And St Kilda itself, I've never been there. It's the only one I've not been to. I would love to go. The National Trust for Scotland run kind of a whole series of effectively working holidays. Um, The cruise ship. You can you can cruise by, but you can also go and um, it, you can go to a thistle camp where you actually go and help with the management of the site, and yeah, it, it's absolutely phenomenal. It's a dream of mine to go there. We need to get this sorted, Jeff. Yeah, I'm I'm a little disappointed that Calmac Ferries wouldn't work out a deal with you. I mean, we're we're, we're well. <laughs> Uh, we're dropping them a line. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, and I would love to go there. Um, Shetland is very high on my list of places to visit I've not seen yet, as is Orkney. Um, and so I want to get out. And, um, uh, oh, what's the uh, – I'm going to embarrass myself here. Is it Mara that has the uh, the beach where, where the planes land on the beach, the airport? Uh, Bara. Bara. Yeah, the last of yes. the um, – yeah. Actually, funnily enough, um, I've travelled a lot in the Outer Hebrides, but that's the only island I've not been to. Oh, uh, yeah, and yeah, so I feel a bit embarrassed about that myself. Well, wow. I'm very lucky. I've actually landed on the beach in Bara on one of the most beautiful days in the history of the universe. It was one of the best experiences <laughs> if you ever get a chance. They fly in really low over the Western Isles, um, and the plane. I think there's maybe about maybe 10 seats on it um, and you can really see the islands from above and then you land on the sand and it's it's really magical 
Yeah, that's that's one of those experiences that uh, I've uh, is definitely on my bucket list of things to do um, when I get back over to Scotland. And uh, as is one of the seaplane tours, either um, uh, out of uh, I think they go out of Glasgow and also uh, up off of the Isle of Skye. I'd love to uh, just see the country from the air. Um, would be uh, would be rather for a, for a balloon pilot that would that would be a, a great thing to do uh, without question. Um, I hate to wrap things up, but eventually we have to. We could probably go on talking history and heritage and archaeology for uh, quite some time. But I guess let's look at things to wrap it up in kind of a big picture. And and my question is, you know, the Scots, because we haven't even touched on Scottish history from around the world, which what we did briefly talking about the Alamo, but that's another subject probably for another day. Um, But the Scott diaspora um, is one of, if not the largest in the world, there are millions of um, Scots, Scott descendants, um, affinity Scots, persons like myself who have Scott ancestry, but you know we're not born there, obviously. Um, and even those who who don't have any Scottish blood, no ancestry, but still, for whatever reason, feel an affinity toward the country. This year is an important tourism initiative, which um, Visit Scotland puts forth a new theme each year. But beyond that. Um, on the ongoing picture, how important do you two believe it is for um, the Scottish diaspora, the Scots from around the world, and I guess to a certain extent even the Scottish people themselves, to get involved with and find a relationship with their history and heritage and archaeology, that, that story that all of that tells combined? Um, how important is it that, that this be more than just a one-year tourist initiative, that it actually be an ongoing relationship between um, Scots around the world and the, and the country of Scotland? Well, I think it's hugely important. I suppose it's, it's up to every individual what their relationship is. And I love, you know, people say, well, what, what does it mean to be Scottish? And I love this idea that Scotland is an attitude of mind. So if you want to come here and, you know, be Scottish, then that's fantastic. But I, th- I think as, as much um, as the importance of the connection for the diaspora, it's about everyone who lives here today and who chooses to make this um, our home. I don't know if you've heard this idea of the new Scot. Um, but there are people from all over the world, and as much as it's about celebrating, um, you know, the, the voices of the past, it's about celebrating the diverse voices in the communities today and the connections that those new stories have with the stories of the past. So, I think it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's really about connection and community, um, and value and meaning and the flourishing of human communities. So, I think it's just as important the new stories that are here in Scotland today as as the old stories of the diaspora. I would uh, completely agree with that. The organisation I'm employed by, the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, we've got about 700 members from North America alone. There's a huge interest um, and that kind of enriches our understandings of the past and brings in new stories. Back in 2015, we were involved with a project called Strulig, um, which was a a kind of a, a wonderful performance musical piece um, that was played in Glasgow. Um, it, kind of, it was it was massive, um, and it was all about the Gaelic diaspora, um, which is just you know one component thereof. And it was absolutely amazing because they brought in Gaelic performers from all over the world, um, and it, I hadn't even thought about some of the connections. There were Canadian Gaelic rappers involved in the whole thing. <laughs> it was just it was. It was kind of mind-blowing, and I think it's it's so easy to kind of um, 
pigeonhole certain types of culture, you know, in a kind of, oh, yeah, that's hermetically sealed and in the past. But as Mary says, it's it's kind of it's live and it's malleable and it's really cool that people look at Scotland and visit Scotland or see it on the telly and then come and come and visit and make that connection. Um, it's kind of as someone um, uh, who, who lives here, it's really it's just so nice to think, oh, wow, you know, folk are interested. Folk kind of want to, to come over and, and take part in that and, and contribute their own stuff, too. That's the, the most important thing. It's uh, it's not something that you kind of passively consume. It's something that you kind of get involved in and then you know, actually add to. Can I just add to that? There was a very poignant moment um, at the Edinburgh International Festival last August, where to open the festival, they projected onto the walls of Edinburgh Castle a kind of very, very fast history of a kind of geological history of Scotland. And it finished with these huge words that said, Scotland welcomes the world. And I thought that that was absolutely lovely, especially given, you know, um, current the current political climate. So you're very welcome. Come. Yeah. <laughs> My thanks to my guests, Mari McFadgen and Jeff Sanders. And Mari is right. Visitors are most welcome in Scotland, the country, its major cities of Edinburgh and Glasgow, and even the Scottish accent are consistently voted among the friendliest in the world. For more on the vast scope of activities connected with the Year of History, Heritage, and Archaeology, see the website of Visit Scotland. You'll find a link in this episode's show notes, along with links to the websites of Digit 2017, the Storytelling Center, and more, all on our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. In the coming weeks, we'll have even more history for you, as we'll visit with one of Digit 2017's TV hosts, The Castle Hunter. Also on tap in coming episodes, we'll talk tartan with a Highland designer, explore touring Scotland by bicycle. We'll chat with the author and illustrator of the English and Scots language children's book, The Tartan Witch, talk about promoting Scotland with a .scot domain from .scot registry, and soon we'll sample the debut solo album of Doogie McCants, Piper of the Red Hot Chili Pipers. It's all coming up right here, Under the Tartan Sky. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer, Tapalev Agus Alapakubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And while you're there, check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartansky. That's the underscore symbol, tartansky. And thank you for listening. <laughs>